the nature of the next 20 years is going to be defined to a very large extent by the way in which the United States leading the Western world can find a way of adjusting Russia's need for security and respect without any threats. Welcome to Alpha with me, Stan Kugel. Today on Alpha, what's wrong with Russia? The long view. My guest today, Marvin Kalb, has a first-hand perspective on Russia that few, if any, can match. Young Kalb was first posted to Moscow in 1956. He served as Moscow bureau chief for CBS News at the height of the Cold War, anchored NBC's Meet the Press, was founding director of Harvard's Shorenstein Center on Press Politics and Public Policy, and is a senior fellow at Brookings. Kalb famously intercepted Nikita Khrushchev at 6 a.m. outside the Soviet embassy in Paris, walking, talking, and buying croissants for his entourage. <laughs> From before the Cold War through to today, Russia has had a troubled relationship with the outside world. What is Putin all about? Is he an anomaly or a continuation of long Russian history? Well, my guest, Marvin Kalb, joins me now. Marvin, welcome to Alpha. Thank you, Stan. It's a pleasure to be with you. Ukraine and Vladimir Putin are top of mind. But before we go get to that, I'd like to go back in time. I'd like to start at the beginning and understand something about the young man arriving in Cold War Moscow. Hmm. Where and when did you grow up? What was your religious, cultural, political background? <laughs> okay, well, I'll try to do this very briefly. Um, I am New York born. Uh, my parents, uh, at different times before World War I, uh, came to the United States. My father from uh, Poland, but at that time it was part of the Tsarist Empire. My mother from Kiev, from Ukraine, also then part of the Tsarist Empire. Uh, they ended up in different parts of the United States, but joined up, joined forces, so to speak, when they met in New York. Russia was part of our lives as we grew up, simply uh, because my mother and father would occasionally talk about it. Not as much, by the way, as I thought they might, given the fact that they were both born, both emerged from that environment. I think with a lot of people who came here after the beginning of the 20th century, wanted to escape from Eastern Europe. They, they didn't want to go back there, even in memory. And so they didn't talk about it terribly much. But nevertheless, it was part of my background. I understood it. Um, and when I was finishing, sort of in the middle of college, really, which was City College in New York, my brother, who was at that time a reporter for the New York Times, um, and I and his friends would occasionally get together. I, as the young kid in total admiration of these magnificent reporters, uh, Abe Rosenthal, Artie Gelb, uh, all of these people who became outstanding editors at the Times were people I kind of grew up with. And so journalism was very much part of my life. And I was going for my PhD at, at Harvard in Russian history. And my brother put a bug in my head, which was, if you're going to teach Russian history, great, but be aware that Russia is a great power now. And is there a way in which you can take the history of the past in a way some of the things, Stan, that you're talking about? 
take the history of the past and make that meaningful to the reality of today. And there was a marriage then between my sense of Russian history and my desire to be a journalist. Suddenly, Ed Murrow came into my life and offered me a job at CBS. I was thrilled with the offer, uh, instantly dropped scholarship and went into journalism. But I still remain, you know, really uh, so very much committed to the study of, of Russia. What were your first impressions of Moscow arriving there in 1956? Well, um, two things, I guess. One was that it was not new to me. I was not shocked by what it is that I saw, because for a period of about uh, six years before that, I had been intensively studying the Soviet Union, and not only the history of the Soviet Union, but economics, politics, literature. And so when I arrived, uh, it was exciting, tremendously exciting for me, because I was seeing that which I had been studying. But I was not blown away that this was something new. Um, I sort of had a feel for it. The second point, however, was the richness of what it is that I was seeing. I was looking at a communist society at work from that aspect of it, the system did not work. And it did not work because it was committed to a philosophy of government that simply did not allow any kind of individual creativity. It had to come from the state down. It was never from the people up, despite what the, rhetoric, what the rhetoric indicated. And it was a sad thing to observe because if you met Russians, and I spoke Russian, so if you met Russians and you talked to them, you knew immediately that you were dealing with um, a people with a rich history. And because I had studied that history, they were uh, pleased that, and, and sort of flattered that a foreigner comes to them and knows something about them and can talk to them and in their language. So um, I delved into Soviet Russian society as deeply as I could. I don't know that I got all that deep, but I tried. And I met many Russians and talked to them and they to me. And I developed a, um, a sense of the country where it was going. I was not, by the way, again, surprised in 1991 when the system simply collapsed because I had thought it would have collapsed sooner because it just didn't work. What were you thinking that morning in Paris when you intercepted the leader of the Soviet Union? <laughs> well, um, it was the middle of May 1960, and I had just been appointed the Moscow correspondent for CBS, and I was on my way to Moscow to pick up that assignment. On my way, I was detoured to Paris, which is not a bad place to be detoured to, uh, because there was to be a four-power summit meeting. The United States, the Soviet Union, France, and Great Britain. And de Gaulle in charge of France was to be the official host. And, Khrush and the meeting was to start on a Monday morning. Khrushchev arrived on Saturday night. And I had studied this man. I, I felt as if I knew sort of the way he operated. And I felt very strongly that he was, as he did in the past, 
he was going to get up very early on Sunday morning and take a walk. And I turned to my uh, bureau chief at that time and I said, would you give me a crew and I'll go there on my own time. I'll go there early Sunday morning and see if he doesn't show up, then that's life. And if he does, I might have a good story. And so I was there Sunday morning at six o'clock. And the cameraman, who's a wonderful man, um, he spoke a little bit of English and I spoke a little bit of French. And we got on quite well. And he said, when do you think he's actually going to walk out? I said, it'll be either at exactly 6.30 or at exactly 7. He said, okay, we'll be ready. 6.30 came and went, no cruise jet. But at exactly 7, these large iron doors of the Russian embassy open up, and there is Khrushchev walking out. Khrushchev came out, two bodyguards, and I rushed toward him. I was very excited. And he saw me, and I obviously saw him, and the two bodyguards intercepted and reached into their jackets. And Khrushchev, thinking they were going to pull out revolvers, which they might well have, uh, he said, no, 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 no. He said, um, um, He's a good guy. He's Peter the Great. And that took us back, and I'll tell you very quickly. In 1956, the, one of the first times I met Khrushchev, um, I physically 6'3", Khrushchev about 5'6", in height and width. And he looked up at me and um, uh, began to talk basketball, which I knew a little bit about. And he, and he said, no, um, how tall are you? I said, I'm six centimeters shorter than Peter the Great. And he burst into laughter. He thought that was the best line he heard in a long time. And when a dictator laughs, by the way, everybody around the dictator laughs too. So everyone was in a big uproar that there was this young American who was being compared to Peter the Great by the leader. And that meant later on when I was there for CBS, I was able to get a couple of interviews with Khrushchev because of this Peter the Great connection. So we're in Paris. Um, he comes out, Peter the Great, and I say, um, Mr. Chairman, where would you like to walk? And he said, where would you suggest? I said, well, let's go right down this street here because there's a marvelous croissant place right on the corner. And he looked at me and he said, uh, what is that? I said, a croissant. It is a French, um, French black bread. Um, but I would like you to try it. So we walked out of this bakery, which was just opening up then, and there was this marvelous aroma of croissants just coming out of the oven. And Khrushchev stopped, and you know, he, he, was, um, he was an extraordinary man in so many ways. He kind of sniffed. Mm -hmm. He said, I'd like to try one. Oh, wonderful. I ran inside. I got one for him. <clears throat> one for his bodyguards, uh, for my crew, and for me. And Khrushchev took a bite into it, and really, Sam, his face lit up like a kid's being fed chocolate for the first time. It was so wonderful to see. And um, boy, he said, that is really tasty. Um, and I said, I'm so pleased that you like it. And he was in a good mood. I was in a, an exploitative mood. And I began to ask him questions. And it was a big exclusive. 
my first story, a big exclusive. It was the right way to get started, let me say. And, um, and many times when I saw him after that, it was always, here comes Peter the Great. That was a, it was a good intro. Much of our analysis in the West is uh, grounded in the political personality of the moment uh, or the system, the Soviets, the unique moments of Gorbachev and Yeltsin, and of course, Putin now. What I'd like to explore today is the through line, if we can find it. Is Vladimir Putin's Russia something new or is Putin and his worldview rooted in something deeper in the Russian psyche? You know, in a way, Stan, it's both. It is new in the sense that Russia did experience an industrialization, um, a period when literacy came to the Russian people. And this was all in the period of the middle of the 20th century. Putin is living in Soviet times only 20 and 30 years after that period. But he's living in that period of time that anyone who lived in Russia um, 50 years ago, as I did, would be very much at home, quote unquote, moving into Moscow today. There are some new buildings and all of that. But once you left Moscow or you left Petersburg, you'd be in the Russia of the 19th century. It, it is, I'm not exaggerating. It is, if you go into a small town in Russia today, 20 miles outside of Moscow. That town has not changed all that much in the last 100 years, or 150 years. So in that sense, it's the same, but it is Russian at its core. And that means you do have to go back into Russian history and find out what are those qualities of the past that are in the present that govern the present, that without a knowledge of the past gives you no insight then into where you are today. Uh, my sense, and I, I say this partly as a kind of Russian historian, um, I'm not trying to sell this, it is my deep belief that you cannot understand Russia today without having some knowledge of Peter the Great at the beginning of the 18th century. And what's interesting here is that Putin in a way regards himself as a direct descendant of Peter the Great. And that is not only in terms of personality, it is in terms of the achievements of Peter the Great and what it is that Putin today would like to emulate. So the link is very direct. Mm, it's interesting you mentioned Peter the Great. Uh, is there a Russian inferiority complex vis-a-vis -vis the West? Yes. I think that there is. I think that has been going on for a very long time. It was it was accented and made part of Russian history, I think, with Peter the Great and then following on with Catherine, um, who lived who governed for 30 some odd years. And then when you went into the 19th century, the czars one after another were in one way or another hooked into the West, either in emulation of the West or in flat-out denial of the West, but always in one way or another hooked to it. And we're very much involved in that same um, conflict today. Uh, Putin has done his best to drive the West out of Russia's soul. 
and he has had some good success. In other words, he is creating a state that is um, truly half of Russia, the half that is totally Russian, Eastern, Slavophilistic, contrasted to the links between Russia and the West, which were very, very strong and continued, by the way. Even during the communist period, when the communists were attacking Western capitalism and blah, 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 they were also copying it. Throughout the 1920s and 30s, where did Stalin go to get his insight into industrialization of Russia? He went to Germany. That's where it came from. And, and when, um, when a Russian writer, thinking of a couple of them, but even someone like Solzhenitsyn, where did Solzhenitsyn go when he left Russia? He went to New England. That's where he went. A Russian writer like Solzhenitsyn, who was so uniquely Russian, where did he go when he left Russia? He went to New England. In other words, there is a natural togetherness that Putin right now is attempting to cut off. I don't think he'll succeed, but he has having, I don't think he'll ultimately succeed, but he is having some success. Why does Russia seem to consistently fail to develop a functioning economy? despite enormous resources, uh, a Soviet system that uh, educated uh, at least some of its citizens very well. Why does Russia seem to consistently fail at developing an internal system that works? When we talk about an internal system, we're talking about a lot of different parts. And it's too much of a rush to say that the whole system failed. The system in part worked when it gave an opportunity for the Russian people to become literate, which they did, which opened their minds then to all kinds of books that they could read in different languages, and which left seeds of individual freedom in their minds. It's there. Um, industrialization came mostly from Germany and, and the United States, but it was successful as far as it went. Where they failed, in my judgment, completely, is that the people who were sitting on top of the system were imposing upon it a standard derived from communist philosophy that said that from top down, you can give the people everything they ever wanted. And it simply wasn't true and isn't true. And the Russian people, in that sense, um, and for many hundreds of years, because they have lived in this, in this double zone of being attracted to the West and repelled by the West, um, have been extremely confused as to ultimately what it is that they represent. Putin today can state with words that we Russians stand together. But which Russians are he talk, is he talking about? If you were to talk to, until this war started in Ukraine, if you were to go to Ukraine into any village, and if you were to say to anybody nearby, um, by the way, um, have you ever been to Russia? Oh, of course. My aunt lives there. We're in, you know, when she comes here and I go there, and my uncle and I married this woman from Moscow. That was in and out at all times. The thing that Putin has done with this invasion of Ukraine is he has truly created 
and independent Ukraine. He has created a new vibrant country on his border. He has created the very thing he didn't want to create and what it is that drove him into this war. He was concerned that Ukraine was, and it was, drifting toward the West. Now he has taken that drift and solidified it so that Ukraine is very much now part of the West, whether Putin likes it or not. That's interesting. So he has, in essence, solidified and accelerated what happened to the other Soviet satellite states. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. As a matter of fact, it's kind of interesting. There's a new document. Well, I'm sort of, I laugh to myself about newness. There's a new document running around Moscow now, which is as old as the Russian state in its modern form. And if you were to say to a Russian historian, what is Russia? Give me the boundaries of Russia. He would say Russia is the Russian Republic, Yellow Russia, and Ukraine. If you have those three locked in, you have the traditional Russian empire. And if you are today like Putin, a modern leader rooted in the past, what he wants to do is make sure that Belarus, Belarus, and Ukraine are linked to Russia, not to the West. Deep down, he really doesn't care what you call yourself. It is what you are in terms of your politics and your military strategy. If you are not a threat to Russia, but sort of part of the Russian empire, loosely put, Belarus, Ukraine, that's fine with him. But when he fears that you are drifting toward the West, he's losing you, and that he will not do. And that is why we have a war right now. So that kind of bipolar um, situation that faces the uh, satellite states, the former Soviet satellite states, is just one history that could have come after the Soviet Union. Clinton and Bush Sr. were both known to favor fully integrating Russia along with the satellite states into the Western-led international system. That failed. Did we squander what Krauthammer called the unipolar moment? Um, possibly. Possibly. I mean, the question always comes up, did we make a mistake in extending NATO toward the Russian border? And Secretary of State Baker knew very well that that was a danger zone. And he assured, he assured the Germans and the Russians that we did not have that in mind. And maybe Baker did not have that in mind, but it sure was in the minds of many American strategists. One of them, and I will never forget this, a very guy who became a very dear friend, in fact. Um, we're at a dinner with him in the mid-1990s. We were talking about this very subject. And I said, I think it's a mistake if NATO begins to think of moving toward the East. There's no need for that. And my friend looked at me and he said, don't be ridiculous. When your enemy is down, take him, take him. Make sure he stays down. And that idea was in the minds of any number of American strategists who felt that since Russia was then in a very weak state, we had every opportunity to move east and to build up Eastern Europe into sort of a Western uh, flank. And I thought it was a kind of dopey idea then. 
and I still do, but it nevertheless did govern and push the West eastward, and that, to a very large extent, um, aggravated Putin a great deal, and it, it festered within him as an issue that had to be resolved one way or the other. There were many here who also advocated uh, bringing the, so the satellite states into the Western system, NATO, EU, um, but did not see it as a hostile act towards Russia and instead had a vision of Russia becoming, let's say, a good citizen, a part of our system. Um, why did that fail? Well, because we might have thought that, but that didn't mean that the Russians thought that. And if you are thinking um, in this series of talks you have of bringing the past into the present to explain the present, this is a very good illustration of it. The United States led a Western world that, did ne that never had an intention of invading Russia. As a matter of fact, as you said, we had every intention of trying to help Russia bring it into the West, help it economically. There was even um, a proposal put to the Russians that they join NATO. But of course, they rejected that immediately. We knew they would, but we wanted to look good. We always want to look good. And we made, I think, a number of genuine efforts to help the Russians, but they didn't see it that way. They saw it as an effort on the part of the West to move in on us when we're weak, to take advantage of us, to push us around, to deny us our true historical legitimacy, and we're not going to put up with it. Now, you, you as a Russian can address that problem in different ways. Gorbachev thought one way of addressing it was to reach out to the West and to strike deals with the West, and in that way to help Russia. And then you have a Putin idea that you don't help Russia by reaching out to the West, you help Russia by cutting ties with the West and building up Russia through its internal majesty and strength. Um, and what happens then, as it is happening now with Putin, is that you exaggerate both the Russian past and your capacity to govern your present. What you're saying suggests that even if NATO had not expanded, uh, it was inevitable that Russia would seek a non-cooperative course with the West. No, not at all. I, if I said that, I misled you. All right. What, I'm, what, what is I'm an alternative? Trying... What, what might have happened? Well, what and, might have uh... happened is what we began to see happening with Gorbachev. In other words, if you have a Russian leader who understands that the history of Russia is composed of both Russia and its reach to the West and the links that it had with the West, and you begin to develop those links, and you're not as you're not as concerned about your own dignity, but you realistically want your country to grow and be strong. And one way of doing that is to strike a deal with the West. Yes, you do that. You do not have to be Putin. You can be a Gorbachev. George Kennan. Cold warrior and former ambassador to the Soviet Union called NATO enlargement, quote, a strategic blunder of epic proportions. I take it you think he was right. I think for a good uh, yes, but again, 
Kennan is such a brilliant writer that he can write more than he intended. I'm not sure that the the point is this huge colossal thing. Um, we did not have to accompany a NATO move to the east with language and additional policy flips that would uh, would put the idea into a Russian mind. These guys are coming. They're here to hurt us. They're not here to help us. They're here to hurt us. You know, it, it's it's ridiculous to say that it's easy to think about Russia. It is not. It's a complicated country with a very complicated past. But to believe that it is impossible to get along with Russia is simply wrong. There have been examples where we got along with Russia quite well. There isn't, when you look at the geography, and you look at where Russia is, it's huge. It spreads over nine to 10 time zones. But it is fundamentally a weak country. It is strong in one respect, military. And even in the military, it's not that strong, but it does have many nuclear weapons. And you've got to respect that. Speaking of respect, is that part of the problem? Yes, yes. I was, I was saying to you before that when you're, in my own experience, a young American, you arrive in Moscow, you're 25, 26 years old. What, what are your advantages? You know about Russia and you speak Russian. Okay. If you go there trying to learn to respect them, to make them understand that you respect Russian history, you respect Russian literature, you love Russian music. It puts you in a different relationship with the Russian. They don't see you as a foreigner coming in here in one way or another to exploit me and hurt me. They see you as somebody who's sort of nice and they, they maybe you can get along with this guy. There have been any number of American diplomats who are um, who would tell you what I am now telling you, um, and some of them who were ambassadors. I mean, our CIA director right now, one of the best Russia scholars that we've got, Bill Burns, and he knows this, but we put ourselves into a confrontational mode where we believe that the only way to get along with the Russians is to show them who's boss. But no. I mean, we wouldn't like that, and they don't like that. I mean, if the, when the Russians moved missiles into Cuba, 90 miles off the coast of Florida, we were ready to have a nuclear war to get them out. And we got them out, not because of anything we did, but because Khrushchev had the guts to pull them out. If Khrushchev on that Sunday had decided not to pull them out, on Monday, President Kennedy more than likely would have attacked Cuba and begun to kill Russians who were based there. And then you could have been in a nuclear war. Is there any world in which Russia could accept Ukraine's uh, integration with uh, Europe, Western Europe? Not the way it's currently structured or articulated. If Ukraine becomes literally part of the West, and frankly, even as I say that, I'm holding myself back because I cannot visualize that. I'm not sure that any Russian leader will accept um, the outright, as they would see it, the outright incorporation of Ukraine into the West. No. As I was saying earlier on, the vision is Russia, Belarus, Ukraine. And I'm repeating myself. Not that you have to formally 
be part of Russia, but you cannot be an enemy or be seen as an enemy. Does that mean you're going to be neutral? Maybe. I mean, Finland for a long time had an opportunity to be itself and yet have a reasonably good relationship with Russia. But right now, Putin has screwed it up. Finland is now part of NATO. So, or about to be. I think that um, the nature of the next 20 years is going to be defined to a very large extent in by the way in which the United States leading the Western world can find a way of adjusting Russia's need for security and respect um, without any threats. It's going to be incredibly difficult. Uh, if you say, okay, big shot, what is the way you do it? I don't know. I just know that the language that we're using now, the attitude that was striking, not only toward Russia, but towards China, is not going to get the United States very far. It's going to get us into a pickle. We're halfway there now. We may end up going all the way. But this is something that is still doable, but it has to be done. In the long run, what kind of relationship should the West seek with Russia and with China? A relationship that is based on mutual respect, a relationship that allows each side to retain its sense of national security and be comfortable with that sense, a relationship that is honest and forthright, where each side understands the limits of the other side and does not live with illusions about what it is that the other side can be made to accept. When you have to make another country accept something, you're talking about a war, and a war between nations with nuclear weapons, and you don't want that. So you've got to find that sensible middle ground, which I still think is possible, but it is going to be very tough. Is it possible to get along? Yes, absolutely. It must be possible, because if you don't get along, you face the possibility of a nuclear war. Marvin Kalb, thank you very much for joining us on Alpha. My pleasure. Thank you, Stan. As epilogue, the geopolitical question of our time is what course do we chart for relations with China and Russia in the decades to come? Two words from my interview with Marvin Kalb stand out, respect and limits, which I see as meaning understanding both our own limitations and the limitations of what others can accept. There are no easy answers and no easy off-ramps, not in Ukraine, not in Taiwan, but we're best served by seeking solutions that all parties may not like, but ones they and we can accept, because the alternative is unthinkable.